Today is the 6th of September, 2016. My name is Catherine Argetsinger. I'm giving the Dharma talk this evening. And the title of the talk is Practicing. So the inspiration for this talk came from a movie that my husband saw on Netflix and that he told me about and um, thought I'd be interested in. And um, I was. Uh, and the movie is called Seymour, An Introduction. And it's actually a documentary about a concert pianist. So this is a movie that was made in 2014 by Ethan Hawke. And so I'm going to use this movie basically as the text that I'll be talking about and commenting on tonight. And I hope it won't be too sort of disembodied that I'm talking about a movie and I don't have a projector to show you clips or anything. But I'll just try to um, describe what I need to describe and and um, give some quotes from the movie and hopefully that will be enough to act as a springboard for me to talk about some of the ideas and inspirations that came up for me when I saw this film. And um, I noticed in preparing for the talk, I wanted to look back at the film and I noticed that it's not on Netflix anymore, at least not on American Netflix. But I found that the whole thing is now on YouTube, so if anybody gets interested and wants to see it, um, you can find it on YouTube now. So it's called Seymour, an Introduction, and it's a documentary about the concert pianist Seymour, Seymour Bernstein. Um, but really, he's not exactly a concert pianist. He's a former concert pianist. So that's what a big part of this movie is about, is about the fact that he doesn't actually perform anymore. If you look in Wikipedia, it uh, tells us that he ceased performing in 1977, so that was a long time ago, in order to concentrate on teaching, composing, and other creative outlets. He told no one that his farewell recital would be his last. And there was a review of this movie that appeared in The New Yorker. It was a review by Richard Brody. And um, there, Brody gives this same backstory with a little bit more detail. So this is from the New Yorker, March 14th, 2015. And Brody writes, Ethan Hawke's film, Seymour, An Introduction, is a loving documentary portrait of the classical pianist and teacher, Seymour Bernstein. Born in 1927, Bernstein is a formerly celebrated musician who has performed in major venues to great acclaim. In 1977, at the age of 50, long racked with stage fright and other anxieties, he threw himself a concert at the 92nd Street Y that he secretly intended to be his farewell recital. Since then, Bernstein has been teaching, composing, and writing, still living alone in a one-room apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and being, he says, much happier and more fulfilled. So since you won't be able to um, meet Seymour Bernstein through the movie, at least not tonight, I'll try to describe him a little bit. So he's a very sweet, small, elderly Jewish man who kind of exudes this kindness and sensitivity and, of course, deep love for music. And the movie contains lots of wonderful music that's played by Seymour and by the students that we see him um, giving private lessons to and coaching in master classes. So a lot of the movie is the musical performances 
But besides that, it's um, conversations between Seymour and various interlocutors. These are all people that have been important in his life. So they ask him questions about his life experiences and about his philosophy of life. And they also do quite a bit of spouting of their own philosophies of life. And this is my least favorite part of the movie, because this could be uh, quite vapid. But um, what really appealed to me about the movie was um, not so much the, the different philosophical ideas that were being expressed there, but was just the way Seymour talked about practicing, about practicing the piano, and the way he demonstrated how to practice, and the way he worked with his students as they practiced. So it struck me that this was a fellow who had a very clear and deep sense of what it means to practice. And much more than any other music documentary that I've ever seen, this one really focused on this process, this, this process of, of practicing. The very first shot of the movie, um, it opens with Seymour um, just working on a phrase in a piece of music, just playing it over and over again. Um, it involves a, a leap of an octave and He's not just playing it over and over again. He's actually talking out loud. He's talking you through the process of what he's, he's thinking as he's, he's practicing this little phrase in the music. He's saying, I, I really would rather not miss this, this leap, and so I have to figure out what to do here. Maybe if I open my hand in advance, that'll work. And he tries that. No, that's not working. I'm gonna, and so if he goes through this series of things, then, yeah, okay, he's got it now. He's got it. And he, then he puts it back into the, the larger um, piece of music. Later on in the film, um, one of his students, who's now a concert pianist himself, tells about something that he does in, in the concerts he gives. Um, he, he starts by saying that after concerts, he would often get remarks like, oh, it's so great, you can just sit down and play that piece. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you can't just sit down and play it. That's thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of practice. You know? So he says now he tries to actually educate people and he says, recently when I've been playing the Chopin Etudes, I'll actually play it slowly first and demonstrate what it's like to practice at a slow tempo. And then I tell people, you know, this is what goes on for hours and hours, for months and months, until you can play the piece in performance. So Seymour is impressed, and he says, now that's making a real contribution to your audience. So I'm sure no one is wondering where I'm going with this talk. Um, and um, yes, I'll be drawing some parallels between practicing a skill like music and the practicing that we do in our zazen. And the idea that you can make a useful comparison of this sort is um, certainly not an original insight. Um, I'm not sure about you, but I know I've heard it in Teisho many, many times, um, how musicians or athletes or people practicing various other kinds of activities are doing something that's in many ways comparable to what we do in our zazen. And that um, the result of sort of um, when musicians or athletes talk about being in the zone, you know, and when subject and object just kind of drops away, that that can also be compared to something that can happen in our zazen. There's a quote that I've heard um, Roshi repeat many, many times, and um, Maybe Sensei said it too, I don't remember that as clearly, but yeah, I think she has. And that's a quote from Samuel Johnson, and it says, What we hope ever to do with ease, we must first learn to do with diligence. 
So you can't just sit down and play a piece of music. You have to have this meticulous attention, vast patience, do it over and over again. In Rochester, um, there's one of the top music schools in, in the United States is located in Rochester. So often we'll get students at the Rochester Center uh, from, from the school, from the Eastman School. And Roshi always mentions how they come in already getting part of it. They already understand how it is that you have to work with this kind of meticulous attention and vast patience on a practice. So we can easily draw this parallel with our zazen, but I think that also this parallel can easily give rise to a misunderstanding. Because when you practice a piece of music or when you practice an athletic skill, the idea is that it keeps getting better, keeps getting closer and closer to perfection, and eventually you could say you've mastered a piece, you know, it's ready for performance, or you've mastered an athletic skill. So the metaphor might make us think that our zazen also should continually improve. You know, each time we sit down, we should pick up where we left off and just keep going forward. And that meditation is a masterable skill, which it isn't, you know. And often we don't even seem to show any improvement at all, at least not any that we're aware of. Of course, if you think in terms of music in general, it's also not masterable because... Like Zazen, it's unlimited. But if you think of just um, one piece of music, I would say that our Zazen is actually like every time we sit down, and in fact, multiple times in a single round, it's like taking up a new piece, starting all over again. You've got to slow the tempo down. You've got to do it bit by bit, bring that attention to it. So you have to be willing to do this without any sense of, oh, I've been sitting for so many months now or so many years, I should be better at this by now. Because it just doesn't seem to have that kind of sequential progression. Nevertheless, as with music, if we aren't willing to put in that meticulous, diligent, day-by-day effort, obviously there's little that we can expect to come from our practice. But there's a lot more that this movie reveals about practice than than just that sort of uh, obvious truth. The movie was made by Ethan Hawke, who's an actor, and it grew out of his own sort of midlife crisis. So the story behind it, which sort of comes out bit by bit in the movie, is evidently that he was invited to a dinner party by a friend one evening and he happened to be seated next to Seymour Bernstein, whom he'd never met before. And right away he kind of felt his heart open. This, this guy just seems to have um, this kind of kindness and calm about him, as I said. And, and so um, Ethan Hawke very soon found himself opening up to Seymour and talking to him about various personal struggles that he was going through, and these included um, anxieties, performance anxieties, stage fright, and also just a struggle that he describes as centered on why it is that I do what I do. He had hit a point in his career where he was asking himself, you know, why be an actor? Why am I doing this? Is this really what I should be doing with my life? And in particular, he was finding that um, 
the pressure of having a successful career as an actor uh, often seems to be working against him just wanting to do his art of acting as an art. So he was struggling with that as well. So it turned out that Seymour was a, a especially interesting person to talk to about these issues because he had been through so many of these same things himself. And it seems that on some level, um, right from the beginning, he had always kind of resisted what you might call the commoditization of what he did, uh, being a musician as a way of making a career, as a way of making money, becoming famous, being a success. He'd always felt some resistance to that and to the way the sort of business side of the, the thing was carried on. So at the age of 50, this resistance came to a head and actually at the height of his career as a performer, he decided to call it quits. And after that, he says his life changed. He says, once I called my career to an end, everything became clearer and happier, fulfilling. At one point in the movie, when he's asked about this decision to end his career, he says, I wanted to be an amateur. I wanted to be an amateur. He wanted to play music out of the simple love for what he was doing, devotion to his craft. And not to have his performances judged by someone else, not to get great reviews, uh, not as a way to make money. He says, I'm not so sure that a major career is a healthy thing to embark upon. I see my colleagues who have major careers suffer terribly. And his friend Michael, who he's talking to at that point, says, there are a lot of examples of extremely talented, extremely horrible, selfish people. So the implication in this conversation is that people can be great musicians, but working with the wrong motivation, um, playing music basically to gain approval from others or to advance a career. And as Seymour points out, they suffer from this. And as his friend Michael points out, they often make other people suffer also. So this issue of motivation behind the practice is obviously essential in Zen as well. If we're working with an instrumental motivation, that is if we're working in order to get somewhere else, to get something for ourselves, that's when we run into trouble. Um, in Buddhist terms, we could say we're just creating karma. Even if what we're doing isn't intrinsically harmful, like playing music is not intrinsically harmful, um, sitting zazen is not obviously intrinsically harmful, but with the wrong motivation, we're just creating karma. When we're trying to accomplish something in our sitting, when we're most focused on results, when we're worried about what the teacher's going to think of our practice, what our fellow pra practitioners think about us, that's exactly when we're most vulnerable and when our practice is most at risk. So it's not that Seymour is saying that talent or attainment is bad, but it's a question of how and why we're using our talent. And in music, the pressure of what Seymour calls a major career can be part of what distorts the practice or the reasons for the practice. And the key point is that just because Seymour stops performing doesn't mean that he stops practicing. So the, a basic principle that has grown out of his experience is that the purpose of practicing 
goes beyond the result of a particular public performance, <coughs> but rather the process of working with a piece of music, of testing oneself with it and through it, has the, has the capacity to enrich and shape a person and actually to bring forth somebody's blocks and allow them to work on them. So that in working on a piece of music, a person can actually be working on themselves. Seymour says, when I was around the age of 15, I remember that I became aware that when my practicing went well, everything else in life seemed to be harmonized by that. When my practicing didn't go well, I was out of sorts with people. So this discovery at the age of 15 seems to have acted as a first kind of hint to, I guess, what you would call the philosophy that Seymour develops as a musician and a teacher. And at one point in the, the movie, he kind of states his, like, this is my philosophy of music. He, he, and he sounds like he's reading something, so, so it could be something that, that he's published somewhere, I'm not sure. But this is what he says. He says, motivated by a love of music and possessed of a clear understanding of the reasons for practicing, you can establish so deep an accord between your musical self and your personal self that eventually music and life will interact in a never-ending cycle of fulfillment. So I tried to rephrase this and um, see if we could say something similar, talking about Zazen. So this is what I came up with. Motivated by a love of the practice and a clear understanding of the reasons for practicing, namely to benefit all beings, you can establish so deep an accord between your formal zazen and your moving daily lifespan that they will interact in a never-ending cycle of fulfillment. So after Seymour stopped performing, he found that he had more time for creative work as a composer and a writer. But as the movie makes clear, the main thing that he has focused on since then, or his main creative outlet, is, is his work as a teacher. So um, really in the movie get to see him coaching and working with his students and seeing how he tries to hand on to them what he's learned about practice. So yeah, it's clear that technique is important, musicianship is important, but in working on the technique and the musicianship, he's really working with the whole person, helping his students to develop through the music and through the process of practicing. Seymour says, the most important thing that music teachers can do for their students is to inspire and encourage an emotional response, not just for the music, but more importantly, for all aspects of life. So in Zen, we don't usually speak of that um, our teachers are trying to encourage an emotional response, but uh, definitely I think we'd say that we work with our teachers in order to be able to be more responsive, to be able to be more appreciative, to be open to all of life, the ups, the downs, the in-betweens. One of Seymour's students, um, quite, quite a young-looking one, looks maybe 18 years old or so, he says, When I'm playing the piano, I have to listen so carefully and with such precision, and Seymour interrupts him at that point and says, and with love, and the student says, yeah, and with love, to what's coming out of the instrument. When you apply that to listening to someone speak, you can really catch a lot of their emotions. So just learning to listen to yourself makes you able to listen to other people. 
I think that's a good description of what we can find in Zazen too. Observing the mind, becoming aware moment by moment of our own emotions, our own desires, impulses. Starting to see how the mind works. Seeing our own defilements, our own wonders. We start to understand what it is to be human and through that, how to respond to another human being. All right, so, so far so good. But there remains the fact that music, unlike Zazen, is in its essence a performing art. So Seymour's decision to stop performing uh, is still nearly 40 years later when this movie is made. It's met with some skepticism by the people that are talking to him in the, in the movie. And his friend Michael really presses him, really presses him on this. So Michael seems to be a particularly close friend of of Seymour's. He's someone that Seymour has taught piano to from the age of five years old. He started as his student at five years old. He didn't become a pianist. He became an arts critic for the New York Times. I forgot to write down his full name. You may have heard of him. But anyhow, he's an arts critic for the New York Times now. And... um, He's just been, you know, lifelong, had this lifelong connection with Seymour. So we understand that Seymour just wanted to be an amateur with his music and that retiring from performing gave him more time for creative work. But Michael asks him quite pointedly, as a gifted pianist, doesn't he have a kind of responsibility of sharing the gift? Isn't he just copping out in a way, just trying to find a safe place? So this is the kind of question that we too can often get asked about Zazen, or that we might sometimes ask ourselves, are we just using the practice as a way to avoid engaging, to avoid problems or difficulties? So in spite of the fact that this movie is you know, all about admiring Seymour and showing how great he is, the movie actually never seems to make 100% peace with the fact that he no longer performs. And in fact, the climax of the movie is centered around a performance, even though it's a small and private one. It's a performance that Ethan Hawke talked Seymour into giving uh, for his friends and for his students. So, you know, he wanted him to perform one more time. So I think that this orientation of the movie is really a reflection of, of that it's really hard for us in our society to give up a kind of outward-oriented, accomplishment-driven sort of point of view. But when his friend Michael challenges Seymour on the fact that he doesn't um, perform anymore um, and, and says, weren't you just trying to find a safe place? There, there's no doubt that part of this grows out of the fact that besides any positive reasons that Seymour may have stopped performing, there's this whole other side of it is that he was really um, tormented by stage fright and performance anxiety. And so if you remember the review in The New Yorker that I read at the beginning of the talk, it, the, the basic um, story arc that, that uh, Brody gives in the review is, in 1977, at the age of 50, long racked with stage fright and other anxieties, he threw himself a concert that he secretly intended to be his farewell recital. And since then, blah, 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 he's been much happier and more fulfilled. So this was the basic story arc that I picked up on my first view of the movie also. Um, 
Performing, performing became too stressful and life became happier after he gave himself permission to stop performing. But then I watched the movie a second time as I was um, taking down notes and quotes for the talk and I realized that I had kind of missed something the first time through, that the, the story was not that simple at all. That wasn't quite what the story that Seymour had to tell. He does talk a lot about the stage fright and the anxieties that he went through. Um, his friend Michael says to him, but you were a great pianist. You used to get great reviews. And he says, it didn't help. It didn't help, though. It did not help to allay the horror that I felt before and during a concert. He says, I had terrible blocks. I had physical blocks in my playing itself. I had blocks whenever I was on the stage, having a fear of memory slips. I felt inadequate as the pianist. Now you understand, if we're talking about the correlation between a musician and a person, if you feel inadequate as a musician, then you're going to feel inadequate as a person. But in spite of this, he says, he says, he only quit, I only quit after I felt good on the stage, he says. He says that around the age of 50, he found that he had reached the point where he could finally say what he wanted to say on the stage. And that was when he quit. It doesn't mean, he doesn't claim at all that his anxiety or his stage fright had left him. But what he does explain is that he actually didn't let himself quit performing until he felt he had done sufficient work with those anxieties and with um, that stage fright. Until he he got to the point that um, in spite of them, he was able to express himself fully on the stage, in spite of the anxieties, or even because of the anxieties. Um, He makes the point in a couple of places that performers have to be nervous, that it's part of, he believes, what they need in the mix of what they're doing. So Zazen obviously is not a performing art, but one of the most distinctive things about Zen that's different than um, any other meditation tradition that I'm aware of is our um, formal tradition of Doksan. And the way that that's structured very formally with the bells and sitting knee to knee to the teacher and the demand that we bring the results of our practice into the Doksan room before the teacher, all this means that performance anxiety is actually often front and center uh, of the things that we deal with in our practice. Many of our neuroses and blocks that we would just be able to cover up or ignore, brush under the rug, if all we had to do is sit, they can loom up in an inescapable way when the doksan bell rings. So how do we work with that? At times I think it may just feel easier to just opt out of that part of the practice altogether, just not go to doksan, or go only when we feel sufficiently settled and like we have it together. But Seymour kept working with his stage fright year after year. Here's how he put it. I said to myself, if I'm going to be that terrified of walking across the stage, what am I going to say about facing the vicissitudes of life? It's the same. So it's the same for us, too. We can say, if I'm going to be that terrified of walking into a small room with another person, what am I going to say about facing the vicissitudes of life? Um, What is scary about walking into a small room with another person? 
there's actually, of course, nothing scary about it, and we could say it's a kind of artificially induced anxiety. The whole the whole setup can tend to do that, but even if it's artificially induced in some sense, we can actually use it. We can use it um, to practice with to learn how to function in life situations that, that produce these same uncomfortable feelings. As Seymour said, his feelings of inadequacy as a pianist revealed his feelings of inadequacy as a person. To work with such feelings, not to get rid of them certainly, but to bring them out into the open where we can confront them and begin to see them for what they are. This is the chance that we have in Doksan. Seymour says, I started to feel integrated only when I started to survive on the stage, when I placed tremendous challenges before me only to be cast down. Something in me said, really? You're inadequate? Well, then stop beefing about it and make yourself adequate. Instead of practicing four hours a day, I turned it to eight. The struggle is what makes the art form. I go to war for my art form. Prenatally, I guess I knew immediately that that's how life is. It has conflicts and pleasures, harmony and dissonance. You can't escape it. By the way, the same thing occurs in music. There are dissonances and harmony and resolutions. You won't enjoy the resolution unless you have the dissonance. What would it be if we didn't have the dissonance? We wouldn't know the meaning of the resolution. Or as we say in Zen, the Zen saying goes, difficulty alternates with ease. Therein lies the way. Both needed. So there, there's a lot of what there's a lot to what Seymour says in that quote, but um, for me, from the Zen perspective, it's it's the beginning part of that quote that that's really the most interesting, where he says, um, "I started to feel integrated only when I started to survive on the stage, when I placed tremendous challenges before me only to be cast down. Something in me said, "Really, you're inadequate. Really, you're inadequate." His answer to that question was to struggle to make himself more adequate, to practice harder. And certainly in Zen too, we can always redouble our efforts. But in Zen, it's just as important just to stay with that question, simply rest in that question. Really? You're inadequate? Really? Who's inadequate? And who's this that's judging the who that's inadequate? Who? So it's here that we start moving beyond practicing to get something and even practicing as a means of working on ourselves or self-improvement and start to approach practice as a way of grappling, grappling with our deepest questions. For Seymour too, this lifelong practice of music has been more than just a means to a successful career and also more than just a means of working on his blocks and neuroses. Here's how he puts it speaking essentially within the Jewish framework with which he was raised. He says, people are searching for some answers, some stability that will make them lead a happier life. It says in the Bible that help cometh from the Lord within. I call it a spiritual reservoir. I don't call it God. But most people don't tap that resource of the God within. What upsets me about religion is that the answers always seem to be apart from us in the form of a deity, and we depend upon the deity for salvation but I firmly believe that it's within us. In his own way, then, I think that Seymour has found what we can ultimately find in our zazen as well. 
that if we practice sincerely, if we deeply and probingly work on ourselves, then the end result is that we actually start to move beyond our limited ideas of who and what this self is that we're working on. As Master Dogen so famously said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. All right, so now I'm going to move into the last bit of my talk here. And up to now, I've been just talking about the parallels that I saw uh, between the things that Seymour had discovered from practicing music and some of the things that we can discover in, in practicing Zen. But um, it seems to me that there are contrasts also. So just because we can draw these parallels between Zazen and music or athletics, it's not to say that our own practice of Zazen is not unique or that a sitting practice is not unique. I think what's different and really fascinating about a sitting practice is that there is no observable activity, no performance, no craft object, nothing produced, nothing audible or visible produced that other people can marvel at. I think I have time to um, mention that uh, at the Rochester Zen Center, there's this annual tradition called Sangha Entertainment Night in which we... um, It's kind of like a little talent show. We entertain each other, but most of it is centered around various skits that people put together, funny skits that sort of poke fun at different aspects of what goes on in the center or different aspects of our practice. And um, often throughout the year, um, people will talk about things and say, oh, that would make a good skit, you know, sort of like a running running topic of conversation. And... um, one of the skits that's been proposed many times by one of the residents there is that you could have the Zazen Olympics, you know, so you have, you have a bunch of people lined up and then you have the announcers, you know, giving the play-by-play. It's like, oh, you know, his nose is itching. Is he going to hold up? Is he going to go for it? You know? <laughs> of course, the joke is that nothing's happening. You know? so, so there we are practicing, but what is it that we're practicing? We could say that we're training the mind, that meditation is essentially mind training. But what's this mind and who's training it? Right from the start, it's really difficult to break down our practice into subject and object, performer and performance, the same way that we seem to be able to do with something like music or athletics. I actually run into this conundrum frequently when I tell people that I'm leaving town to go do training at the Auckland Zen Center. And very frequently what they'll ask me is, oh, what are you training for? Well, <laughs> we just call it that. You know? <laughs> I just go there to practice. So, practice for what? What, are, what is it that we're practicing for? Um, we could say that our practice is a pure practice. We're practicing the very act of practicing. This makes it especially challenging. Recently, I took up knitting again after many, many years lapse. And the area where I'm living now, knitting is a very popular thing. A lot of people knit. And um, more than one time, people have said to me when they hear that I meditate, they say, oh, knitting is my meditation, you know. Um, That's how I meditate, is by doing... 
And, and it's true, you know, knitting can be very meditative. You can kind of get into a sort of a knitting samadhi. But you, you, have to, you have to also think that, okay, people are saying the knitting is their meditation, but what if you took those knitting needles away from them, you know? <laughs> so they just get to sit there and not knit, you know? <laughs> Suddenly it gets a little bit, a little bit harder. So, unlike knitting or any of these other of these things, as I said at the beginning, meditation is not really a masterable skill. We practice it, but it's not something we're ever really done with. Over time, it might make us less stressed or anxious, and if we practice sincerely, it will almost certainly make us more responsive, more appreciative, more grateful. But there can't be anything instrumental about it. As soon as we start to wonder, am I more responsive? Am I more grateful? Um, we're just setting ourselves up for failure because we're thinking in terms of success and failure. And as I said, we often can't seem to see any change happening at all. But I do believe that if we just get to the mat every day, there is in fact change, even if we don't see it. There has to be change, and that change is coming from our faith and the practice, the faith that we demonstrate by getting to the mat every day that we actuate by doing the practice every day. And the change is our actuated faith, which develops and deepens through our ongoing commitment to the practice. At Sashin, we're often told to listen to the practice, that there can't be any one set of instructions that are going to work in every situation for every person. We have to listen to the practice. What is the practice telling us to do? Should we stay up and sit yaza, or should we go to bed? What's the practice calling for? Can we put aside what our own wishes might be and listen to the practice? Well, what can it mean to listen to the practice rather than ourselves while knowing at the same time that there's nothing at all outside of ourselves? What is this practice we're listening to? Why do we commit to this practice? Of course, no one can answer these questions for us. All we can do is make the commitment and practice and listen. So I'm just going to end with what that young student of Seymour said. When I'm practicing, I have to listen so carefully and with such precision. And Seymour added, and with love. So I think there's time for people to have questions or comments or experiences of your own Zazen practice or other types of practice that you've done? Yeah. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> How do you think that this that it played into your um, resonating particularly with this movie and any of your experiences from that time? That would. Um, um, I don't know so much that time. Uh, I mean, I was in music school for a short time, and um, 
mostly what I took away from that was um, learning how to just fail miserably at something, which is a valuable lesson. But um, but just because that happened uh, to me that way doesn't mean I ever stopped uh, playing. I've always played an instrument, whether it's piano or violin or singing or you know I've always had some. I've always had kept music in my life in some way. So so I think that um, yeah, that's certainly part of what I resonated with. That even if um, your talent level isn't that high or it's it's nothing that you can sort of be a societal success with or career success with it, it can still just be an important, um, that process of, of working with the music can just be really important. Yeah. because I've never that's never been a trigger for me in any way <laughs> and I suspect that um, it does have to do with me coming in maybe you know just like Roshi said with those Eastman students with already a positive this whole positive association about what practicing can do for you you know because of the music background it, it could be you know I never really thought about it that way but um, thinking of practicing more as I was talking about just that kind of um, meticulous attention and being willing to repeat and staying with the process. You know, I guess I have more positive associations with those things, but I understand what you're saying, that the word practice can itself bring up an idea of a result. Like, you're going to practice something, so you're going to get some results. So, you know, um, I guess that's what I liked about this film, was that it sort of turned that inside out. something else must have come later.
I think, though, also um, one of the things that that I liked about the movie, just kind of quite personal, or, or was just um, sort of seeing how other things besides uh, doing zazen can actually do a lot of the same things for people. And I say that just because I have a husband who used to practice Zen quite seriously and then kind of moved on to other things. And um, over the years when I've sort of needled him and said, you know, you should practice again. He just looks at me and says, I never stopped practicing, you know. And he doesn't see it as that kind of a... And, and I think that partly this movie helped me understand that. people stretch their legs.